This Steel Profiles podcast is brought to you by AISC Continuing Education. Visit AISC.org slash webinars to learn about convenient online webinar opportunities. Welcome to another episode of Steel Profiles. I'm your host, Margaret Matthew, Senior Engineer in the Engineering and Research Department at AISC. In a very special episode of Steel Profiles, my guest today is Robert O. Desquay. After serving in the U.S. Navy in World War II, Bob entered Northwestern University and received his bachelor's degree in civil engineering in 1950. He went on to earn his master's degree in civil engineering from Drexel University in 1959. Mr. Desquay joined AISC as a district engineer in 1959 and worked his way up to chief engineer in 1963. Bob is a licensed professional engineer and a fellow of the American Society of Civil Engineers, as well as an emeritus member of the AISC Specifications Committee and the AISC Manuals Committee. And in 2000, Bob was awarded the AISC Lifetime Achievement Award. Welcome, Bob. I'm so glad we're finally getting to do this. I'm honored and so pleased that you're finally here to do my podcast interview series. Well, thank you, Margaret. Appreciate that. So you served in the Navy in World War II. Yes, I did. What was that experience like? Well, I was only in for a few years. Uh, one year during the war and then a year afterwards. I graduated from high school in 1944. They were taking people in the Army very fast at that time, drafting, and I did not want the Army, so I joined the Navy at 17. I had to get permission. My mother gave me the permission. I went to boot camp and then I went to uh, sonar school, which is like an underground or underwater uh, radar for submarines and uh, served in the Atlantic for just a few months and then that war was over and went to the Pacific and trained for the invasion of Japan and was in Pearl Harbor when the bomb dropped. The, you were? Uh, yes. Not in December 7th. Oh, okay. No, I was in Pearl Harbor in 1945. Oh, when it when, happened. When the bomb dropped. Oh, okay. The uh, atom bomb. That was the end of the war. We went to Japan right afterwards, and I was in Japan a month or so after the war was over. Had liberty in, in Japan. It was pretty awful. And then after the, that, we came home, and I was discharged, and that was it. So then you went to Northwestern University? Yes, on the GI Bill. I went to Northwestern, and they had a co-op program. And I uh, co-opted with the Tennessee Valley Authority in Knoxville. Oh. And graduated from Northwestern in 1950. So you obviously studied civil engineering. I took civil engineering. What, what made you decide to do that? I visited Hoover Dam in 1940 with my father. And I was absolutely intrigued by it. Also, I had read about the Galloping Gertie in Washington, which the Tacoma Narrows Bridge fell, and I was mm -hmm. terribly interested in that. So I thought both of those experiences led me into civil engineering. So then after that, you went back and studied at night to get your master's degree. Yes. After I got married, I studied at Drexel in master's degree and my thesis was in plastic design which was just beginning to be understood and I wrote a paper, I wrote my uh, thesis on plastic design and of course later on I wrote a book 
on plastic design. So plastic design was always a major factor in my professional career. And we'll talk about that a little okay. bit later. So now your father, I understand, was the Dean of Engineering. At yes, Washington he was. University. Was he the Dean when you went to school there? No, he no. had just retired. It's very interesting. He was Dean of Engineering there and a man that I admire very much. Matter of fact, the tallest building at Drexel University, 25 stories, is called Disquay Hall. After your father? Yeah, after my father. And it wasn't because they gave him any money. <laughs> it was because he was loved by the students and faculty. Uh, so you worked for several firms in Philadelphia and New York. I, I, I worked as a designer in Philadelphia for about five years and then I went to New York City for another five years and worked as a, as a structural designer there. And that's where I learned the trade of design work. And then you joined the AISC staff. I joined the AISC staff in the December of 1959 and sent to Pittsburgh as a, what we called at that time, a district engineer. Was district engineer there for two years. I got to know the president of American Bridge pretty well. For some reason or other, he liked me. <laughs> and American Bridge really ran AISC in those days, American Bridge and Bethlehem. And when an opening came in New York City for assistant chief engineer, he uh, saw to it that I was promoted to New York City at that time, headquarters. Okay, so then you became assistant in 1962. So what were you responsible for in that job, in that capacity? Well, the name chief engineer and assistant chief engineer, those names are really a misnomer. The number one engineer, of course, was Ted Higgins. And we were in charge of a 32-man field staff. In those days, steel design was a lot simpler than it is today. And in those days, the regional engineers were all pretty expert steel designers, and they, their job was to help consulting engineers design in steel. And so our job in supervising those 32 people in the field was to keep them up to date on steel design procedures and the manual so that they could go to the consulting engineers in their territory and help them design in steel. And you were assistant to Ted Higgins? He was the chief? No, uh, we were totally separate. Oh, okay. from the, the regional staff was totally separate from Ted Higgins' operation, which was research and development. Oh, okay. Ours was more educational. Who were you the assistant to then? A fellow by the name of Sam Clark, but Sam was only there for a year. He resigned in 1963 and I was promoted. Yes, yeah, so uh, you got promoted was, after a year. Uh, after a year. And you were the chief engineer. I, that was <laughs> what we were called. Uh, but as I say, the real top engineer was Ted Higgins. So in 1964, you launched AISC's first lecture series. That's right. In steel design. That's right. Which has gone on to become a very important part of AISC's mission. That's correct. Um, what prompted you to start the lecture series? Well, Why did you think that that's was a very good question because it was my feeling that AISC ought to do something more in lecturing. And at that time, the concrete people were very much involved in very exotic structures like folded plates, uh, hyperbolic paraboloids, and domes. 
they were doing better than steel in those areas. So I developed a lecture series called Space Forms in Steel, and that's what we did. We wrote a series of lectures on these structures, and it was very successful. Mm -hmm. In those days, I think it cost about three or four dollars to go to one of the lectures. Oh, those were the good old <laughs> days. <laughs> yes, they were. Quite, quite different than today. Uh, is it true that your tenure predates the use of the K-factor? Very much so. <laughs> and uh, that's an interesting story, too, because those ten years that I was designing in both Philadelphia and New York, of course, there was no such thing as a K-factor. We never even heard of it. But soon after I moved to New York, 61 or 62, I forget, K-factors, effective length factors for columns was introduced. Mm -hmm. it, it started with a consulting engineer in Boston who was a friend of Ted's, I forget his name now, developed the system of K-factors because that's really how columns worked. After it was introduced, I was in New York at the time and dealt, of course, with a lot of New York City uh, structural engineering firms who had designed some of the tallest buildings in the world. At that time, Chicago was far behind New York in tall buildings, and it was a very interesting experience to me because the consulting engineers were furious <laughs> at AISC for introducing something that they had never heard of. Mm -hmm. And it complicated it. It made column design a lot more complicated, and they just could not understand why it was that their buildings that they've designed, and I'm talking about very high-rise buildings, they couldn't understand why their buildings that they designed and would design had to have this new, strange concept. It was my job to instruct and promote this new system, so it was a little hostility there. What did you think about it? Were you behind it? At first, no. I felt like the way they did. After 10 years, I said, well, what's the matter with what we're, we're doing? <laughs> but then I realized, and I think it was my association with Ted Higgins, even though we were in different departments, and he was almost a generation older than I was, Ted was so good at explaining things that he explained it and wrote a paper on it. One of the first papers in the engineering journal, which we were just starting, and it made terribly good sense. I was converted. So what do you think now that the K-factor has now gone away? <laughs> now we've come full circle. Isn't back. that interesting? <laughs> because I feel now the way the engineers in the 60s felt about K-factors. <laughs> I couldn't, I don't understand what's wrong with them. And if you want to know the truth, I don't understand today why K-factors, and I think they are. I don't understand what's the matter with them. <laughs> it's funny how things come and go. Isn't that interesting? Mm -hmm. Similarity between what happened then and what's happening now with <laughs> column design does have a, a ring of truth to it. Yes, it does. And I think really it's just we don't like change. Of course. We like to do it of the course. way we know how to do it. Of, absolutely, Margaret. <laughs> so then you left AISC for a while and you went to be a professor at the University well, of Maine. What happened in 1980, AISC moved to Chicago and I'd gone to school in Chicago or Evanston and I didn't care too much for the city. <laughs> Second of all, the whole philosophy of regional engineering changed because I think the membership wanted the regional staff to be more 
sales oriented than engineering oriented and our feeling was that the engineering and teaching consulting engineering structural steel was good salesmanship i think many of the members felt more traditional salesmanship was better and so they kind of downplayed the engineering aspects of regional staff was and that didn't jive with my philosophy. When they moved to Chicago, I left and took a job on the faculty at the University of Maine, which I thoroughly loved. I was there for a year and taught elementary structures and steel design. But then AISC, in the spring of 1980, asked me to come back. And I really didn't want to, but I finally decided to do it. And that's when I got involved, not so much in the field work, and that's when I got involved in the AISC manual. So when I interview professors, I like to ask them what they think the best advice is that they can give to a student that's getting ready to graduate. So since you were once a professor, I'm going to ask you what advice you would give to a graduating engineer. For structural engineering, the most important thing in the world is the free body diagram. <laughs> I tried to instill that in the students for structural work. The free body diagram in the whole structure or in the tiniest little welded element, if you can draw a free body diagram and get the, the uh, Newtonian laws, verticals, horizontals, and moments all in balance, you're safe. But so many engineers today just don't do that. So you said you returned to AISC after your, yes. your professorship, and you stayed there until you retired in 91. Nine, that's correct. So you said you got involved with the manuals. Yes. So in that time, you supervised the publication of the beloved ninth edition manual. Yes. But also the first editions of the LRFD uh, that's manual. That's correct. So what was your opinion on the ASD-LRFD debate? Well, at the time, of course, I was had so much of my life with ASD that I uh, have to admit that I was very skeptical of LRFD. After I got into it, like a lot of things, I became more and more in favor of it. Mm -hmm. But at first, I wasn't. I couldn't see the advantage of it. But I do see it now, although I do have, still have some problems with it. So when the first LRFD manual, when that decision was made to make that switch, were, were you behind it at that point? It's a good question. Probably yes. Of course, the manual comes after the spec. Right. And so it was the spec that changed first. And I was not that much involved in the specification at that time. So... We were just following what the spec said. So my job was more just taking the spec and transferring it to a usable concept, including tables. So it was developing the tables with, was the manual at the time, developing them for LRFD. That was what the job was. So throughout your career, you've been a strong advocate of the Type 2 uh, wind connection, <laughs> which was yes. later, later it's been renamed as the flexible moment connection. Yes. So this procedure, although very popular, is uh, widely misunderstood. So yes. what were the common misconceptions? Well, to, to back up a little bit, you have, we have to understand that in the 30s and the 40s, 50s, and even beyond to some extent, the design of 
indeterminate structures was very difficult. Mm-hmm. Especially high rise, maybe one or two stories or one story frames, we had what we called moment distribution and we could do it. But high rise buildings, unbraced buildings, that depended upon the connections for stability, both for gravity and for wind loads, was almost impossible from a, a classical elastic point of view. So all the buildings, and I mean all of them, in those days were designed as gravity load beams and columns, then wind moments by inflection points designed for the connections only. Now, on the surface, that looks like nonsense. You can say from an elastic point of view, it is nonsense. However, that's what was done, and the engineers were comfortable with it. And when I moved to New York in 1962, I began to realize that that's how everything was done. And I couldn't understand it. I couldn't understand why it worked. And so I got deeply involved in it and was involved in it all my life. Among other things, the New York City building code was changing, big change in 1962 or three. And the consultant, was totally against it, the what we call type 2 with wind, and I'll say why that's called type 2 in a minute, and was going to outlaw it. It's called type 2 because the specification in those days had three types of structures. Type 1, which is simple, and with the braced frame, that's how you design things. Type 2 was simple for gravity loads, but moment connections for wind only. That's why it's called type two with wind. And type three was called semi-rigid, which nobody knew anything about, nobody did. It was (laughs) just uh, there. Nobody ever designed a semi-rigid connection to my knowledge. Well, this this outside engineer decided that the building code was going to outlaw type two with wind. And for the second time, I got involved with the consulting engineers in New York, who were again furious that their system of designing, which they couldn't rationalize and they couldn't defend because they couldn't rationalize, was going to be outlawed. Well, I knew with my studying of classic design that I knew that it had something to do with the ductility of steel, but I couldn't totally rationalize it either, although I tried. We had some attempts at rationalizing it. Finally, I did, with the help of a a professor at Lehigh, persuade this outside engineer to permit it, even though it wasn't fully understood. But because it had worked so well, Mm -hmm. and working so well, I mean that the buildings that were designed this way were stiff. New York had hurricanes, and the buildings didn't move. Mm-hmm. They, were, they were good buildings, even though we couldn't rationalize it. So I wrote several papers, none of which uh, really answered the full problem. Until 1975, I wrote a paper called Directional Moment Connections, which showed that with a simple bent, shall I get technical here? Sure. Okay. Uh, <laughs> the best way to explain this is with a simple bent, not a high-rise building, although the same concept is with a high-rise building. With a simple bent, with the wind blowing 
from left to right, the right hand hinge of the right hand beam to column connection, the wind moment and the gravity moment added. And by adding those moments, it became a plastic hinge. The left hand moment, the wind moment, and the gravity moment were opposite directions. Mm -hmm. And in opposite directions, it unloaded and was elastic. So what you have in a simple bent is the right hand beam to column connection is a hinge. The left hand connection is an elastic connection. And no matter what the base is, whether hinged or fixed, it is stable. And that's the way it worked. Another very important concept came up to make it also feasible. And in my 1975 paper, I was able to do this because another concept had been developed by Joe Ura called a leaning column. In my opinion, the leaning column is one of the two most important papers ever written in my history, in my career. And that meant that even though the right-hand column in a simple bent had a plastic hinge at the top, it could lean on the left-hand column and frame and keep the frame stable. Up until leaning columns in Joe Ura's paper on that subject, we couldn't have done that. So the two things, the leaning column and the plastic hinge unloading or loading was what made that work. And I wrote the paper in 1975 called Directional Moment Connections. Not a good name. <laughs> I wish I had named it like a partial plastic design or something like that. Solved the problem. So you were finally able to explain so it, justify that was it. Finally able to do it. Now, that was 1975. In 2005, Lou Geschwinder, a man I admire very much, had read that 75 paper and realized that it worked. And so he and I wrote the paper and 2005 called Flexible Moment Connections, which Lou expanded wonderfully. That today is the definitive paper. And even though there was a lot of hostility in my whole career against type two with wind, there was never any written criticism of that paper. And we were hoping there would be <laughs> so we could discuss it further, but mm -hmm. nobody, even though the, there were hostile peoples, the names I won't name, uh, <laughs> never wrote anything. So you've kind of put it to rest at that point. I put it to rest. Put it to rest. So you're fully retired now. Yes, ma'am. But after you retired from AISC, you stayed very active, serving yes. on many committees for, for AISC, the Specification Committee, the Manual yes. Committee, as well as the Research Council on Structural Connections. Yes. So why do you think that that work is important? Well, the steel industry, the structural steel industry, is very fortunate in being able to set the rules for the design of their own product. This may seem a little confusing, but consulting engineers look to AISC, which is a industry trade association. They look to AISC as the final word on anything to do with structural steel. And this has been a great advantage. The concrete people don't have this advantage. ACI is not an industry organization. 
AISC fundamentally is an industry organization and they look to us, AISC, for the rules. Now AISC has been very smart in uh, inviting, more than inviting, but inviting consulting engineers to write the rules. This is very interesting because when I first joined AISC back in 59, the specification was really written by Ted Higgins, chief engineer of Bethlehem, the chief engineer of American Bridge, one or two outside people, mainly Bill McGuire of Cornell, and a few consulting engineers in Boston, few in New York, but not voting members. The only voting members were industry members. That was changed in the later 60s to invite outside people, not just as advisors, but as voting members, and that's what it is today. You've been a part of more than five decades of activities at AISC. I guess so. So other than the things that you just mentioned, what do you think has changed and what's still the same about AISC today as compared to AISC of old? Well, it's hard to explain it. Of course, engineering is so much more complicated today than it was. It's hard to, for people who study engineering now to understand how simple it used to be. And it was because we had no computers. And so in order to design, pick members, pick connections, it had to be simple. Mm -hmm. That's all we had was a slide rule. So it's the complexity. Of course, when you get old like I am, things look more complex. Maybe not to you. They're probably not that complex, but they are to me. So it's a complexity that, that is baffling. But the basics, the basics of structural engineering, as long as you, you have a free body diagram, don't change. Yep. It's always about the free body diet. That it is for me. So in your work with the RCSC, yes. you helped introduce the concept of snug tight bolting. I not only introduced it, I'll take 51% credit for it. <laughs> uh, up until 1983, all bolted connections had to be fully tightened, whether they were either bearing type or at that time we called friction type, which later became slip critical. The bearing type had a higher allowable, so you needed fewer bolts. The friction type, or slip critical, had a lower allowable, so you had more bolts. But the application, the only difference in application was, according to the spec, that the slip critical, or friction at that time, those connections were required for fatigue loading. But for ordinary static loading, it wasn't required. You could use a bearing type connection, but a bearing type connection had to be fully tightened. Both types had to be tightened by the same rules, regardless of their application. Well, in 1983, we had a, a bolt council meeting in Austin, Texas. I remember it very well. Ted Winneberger, who was vice president of engineering of W&W Steel Company in Oklahoma City, was there, and as he was a member of the Bolt Council, and I was there as an AISC representative, and we both started to ask the academic people why it was that 
bearing type connections had to be fully tightened. The two uh, gurus at the time were John Fisher and Joe Europe. Both of them had been involved in connection design uh, or uh, bolt design from the very beginning. Of course, uh, John Fisher with writing the bolt guide. And nobody had really challenged the requirement that bearing type connections could be fully, had to be rather, fully tightened as friction type connections. The same tightening rules applied to both. They couldn't really explain why that had to be, although they felt concerned in having to change it. Well, for two days and for an evening after dinner, we debated that subject. And finally, I think it was Joe that began to realize that really there was no testing evidence that these bearing type connections would fail or not perform well if they weren't fully tightened. As long as the nut did not come off the shank of the bolt, mm -hmm. there was no reason why it couldn't be done. And if you did tighten it enough, hand tight, so that that nut wouldn't spin off, you could do it. And after two or three days of discussion and debate, both John and Joe, who would make the final decision, because they were experts in it, decided, okay, we'll uh, go for the snug tight bolt. So it was my argument kind of on the academic side and Ted Winterberger argument on the practical economic side because he gave the argument of the cost of tightening bolts which need not be tightened for their performance, a bearing type connection. It was his argument from a economic side that would the fabricators would want these snug tight bolts. Now I say I take 51%, give him 49%. <laughs> it may have been the other way around. <laughs> That's a pretty good distribution. You're infamous for your body language during committee meetings. Oh. <laughs> it's usually very obvious what your opinion of a topic is. Yes. Um, so are you aware of how expressive you are without even saying a word? Not really, although I have <laughs> one of the accusations that I've been accused of in committee meetings is if things got where I disagreed, I would put my head down yes. on the table. <laughs> So I've been accused of that. <laughs> yeah, you could always tell what you thought. I'd look down to see where your head was. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I often hear uh, you referred to as Mr. Steele. Uh, I've heard that, yeah. <laughs> so looking back on your career, it's not hard to understand why. No, oh, thank but you. But do you know who coined that nickname and when? No, I don't know where it started, but I do know, and I forget the modern steel construction article, but there is a article going back some time about me using that expression and I had no idea where it started. <laughs> well it's a very fitting, very fitting name. Thank you very much. The manual committee recently voted unanimously to dedicate the next edition, the 15th yeah. edition AISC manual to you and yeah. when it's printed in 2017. Yes. Um, what did you think when you found out about that? Well, uh, of course I'm obviously pleased, it's very nice. But I, I would like to uh, make a comment about another person who's been on the manual committee for years, besides Bill Thornton, who received these accolades 
few years ago and well deserved because he was chairman for so long. But there's another member of the, the manual committee that I would like to make a comment on, and that's Tom Murray. I remember during the 90s, I think, we were working on a manual. To back up a little bit, Tom is uh, extremely competent engineering-wise and just a very nice guy. The two make him one of the real giants. But I, I remember back in the middle 90s, we were working on a manual, I forget which one it was, and there was a, uh, a problem because the manual was delayed. It looks like it was going to be behind schedule. And we were debating in the manual committee of what we could do about this. And I raised my hand, I was recognized, and they said, well, Bob, what do you think we can do? And I said, I think the best thing to do is to fire Tom Murray. <laughs> and everybody looked at me, oh my gosh, I mean, this great guy, what a horrible thing to say. I said, the problem really is that Tom keeps finding mistakes. <laughs> That's what's delaying it. <laughs> and so they didn't fire him, thank heavens. No, he's still on the manual He's committee. still on the manual committee, and he's a, he's a prince. We'll make him work for us a little bit longer before we dedicate it to him. So, <laughs> no, he, he deserves, he's a giant. He is, he's a wonderful man. Uh, so tell me about your family. You have three children. I have, I have three daughters. I have six grandchildren. I have now, just a week or so ago, I have a third great-grandchild. Wow, just a week ago. Just a week ago, I had the third. It was my oldest grandson. He's a lieutenant in the Coast Guard in uh, Alaska, had their third child. So That's exciting. Uh, I have a granddaughter who graduates from the Air Force Academy in this coming June. Her younger brother uh, graduates from the Military Academy a year from now. And they have two younger sons, younger brothers rather, in high school. The other daughter has the Coast Guard, yes, he graduated from the Coast Guard Academy uh, in Alaska, and his younger brother who's unmarried. So has anybody followed in your engineering footsteps? Yes. The junior at the Military Academy, brilliant young man, um, his grades much, much better than mine were, <laughs> wants to go into engineering. It looks like he will. The daughter, who's also at the Air Force Academy, will, looks like she's going to go into some kind of foreign service work. So your name is Robert O. Desquay. Yes, ma'am. What does the O stand for? Otis. I was named after my uncle, Uncle Otis, who uh, I was born on his birthday. Oh, well, then that was so, wonderful. Yeah. Yeah, that they, so they named me uh, after him. So knowing what you know now, if you could have had a second career, what would it have been? It probably would not have been in engineering. Um, <laughs> I, even though I loved it, my early uh, interests and my interests now are more in history. So I would have probably gone into something like history. But after World War II, we had to make a living. Mm -hmm. And engineering was a way of making a living. And so really, the only reason I went into engineering was to make a living. But I became to like it very much. In your long and illustrious career, of what are you most proud? I'm most proud of? Solving the Type 2 with the wind problem. Definitively? I solved it. Definitively. <laughs> Maybe second, snug-type bolts. 
Well, that's a lot to be proud of. Well, thank you very much. Well, I think those are all my questions well, for today. This mm -hmm. has been such a pleasure. Thank well, you thank so you, much. Thank you, Margaret. I appreciate it very much. It's a lot of fun. This has been a presentation by the American Institute of Steel Construction. For more information on AISC continuing education opportunities, please visit us on the web at AISC.org seminars. And remember, there's always a solution in steel.